want to spend some time today with us just talking about apologetics and abortion. And I think what a lot of people may not recognize is that the issue of abortion has actually been part of the church's apologetics since at least the second century, but maybe not quite in the way that you might think. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but light-hearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Timothy, and I am just barely awake due to jet lag after having just recently returned from England. And I'm Garrick. I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't left the house because it's currently 300 degrees in the state of Texas. Well, as I said, I was in England recently. We had a great time there. I had a lot of things to do with apologetics and everything like that. And it was definitely not 300 or even 100 and whatever it is in Texas. In fact, it got down to about 55 degrees Mm. every night when we were in England and uh, didn't ever get above uh, 80 during the day. So that made me miserable. That would make you an extremely happy person. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I'm angry at you for your misery. We had a great time in England, did some things to do with C.S. Lewis, had a group of PhD students that we took over there, did a class in C.S. Lewis at C.S. Lewis's house, the Kilns, and went to where he went to church, toured Oxford, had a great time at Oxford. And of course, the high point of Oxford, for those of you who have been there or thinking about going there, is Blackwell's Bookstore. If heaven is anything different than Blackwell's bookstore, I'm not sure what it would be. It is floor after floor after floor after floor of the most amazing books, academic, popular, everything. And I spent most of the afternoon when it was rainy in Oxford, and I just sat down on the bottom floor and took a stack of Loeb classical library books and read for a while. (laughs) I was with you. I was with you until... You said Loeb classical, which friends, it means he was like sitting around reading Greek, which there's nothing fun about that. They're fancy looking books. But anyways, moving on to something far more fun than reading ancient Greek, still staying in the ancient realm. Now is the time in which we will put to test. We will put to battle various items, artifacts of church history, perhaps ancient, maybe from the medieval era. No one's brought anything really kind of recent modern, but this is the segment that you know as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. St. Anthony, who is often invoked 
prayed to, called upon by Roman Catholics when they've lost something. St. Anthony is buried in the Basilica of St. Anthony, shocker, in Italy. This church also houses a large reliquary, which looks like a small coffin, a small sarcophagus of something. And this in this reliquary apparently is St. Anthony's tongue. That's right, his tongue. So according to church legend, when St. Anthony's body was dug up, was exhumed years and years after his death, most of his body had just turned to dust. But his tongue, however, which as you would expect of a, of a saint, is said to have appeared moist, which I hate that word, moist and alive, which I don't know if that means like moving alive, or I don't exactly know what we're talking about here. Now, why would I pick a tongue and put it to battle in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Lost Church History? I've just butchered all that, but that's okay. Because of our passage in James 3, in which we talk about the great power of the tongue and how it can't be tamed and how it can set things ablaze and it can build up and tear down and destroy whole kingdoms. So that's why I chose the tongue. And this is obviously miraculous tongue because it remained alive on its own when after a thousand plus years, the rest of the body had crumbled into dry dust. So I put before you, Timothy, the tongue very much still alive and apparently moist of St. Anthony. Well, what I bring before you is from the Middle Ages, what I bring before you is the Holy Lance. Now, as you know, there are a lot of Holy Lances, but this is a very special Holy Lance. So on June 15th of 1098 in Antioch, this is during the First Crusade, there's a peasant, and his name is Peter Bartholomew. And he claimed that St. Andrew appeared to him and told him exactly where the lance that had pierced the side of Christ was buried. And so this whole group of workmen started digging exactly where he said, and they dug and they dug and they dug, and they said, there's nothing here. They can't find anything there. So they, they keep digging, and finally they give up, and they're angry with Peter Bartholomew and say, there's nothing here. And he said, well, let, let me look. Let me look. So he jumped in, and as soon as he jumped in, he found it on the ground, which was maybe a little bit suspicious right there. Uh, it happens at my he... house all the time. All the time, <laughs> I look and look and look for something. I can't find it. I tell my wife, and she finds it you know, in, in seconds. So, so I'm, maybe, I'm not maybe surprised he by had this. That, that same gift. And so, right. so he found it immediately when he jumped in. And the Crusaders took it and won the Battle of Antioch. And so it won the battle. So apparently, or at least that's what people thought. But some people still had suspicions about this particular Holy Lance to do with him jumping in and suddenly finding it. So finally, they demanded an ordeal by fire. And he he said, I'll do it. I will go through this ordeal by fire to prove this is the true lance. And in this ordeal by fire, this medieval ordeal by fire, he has to walk nine feet carrying the lance over burning coals. And so he walks on burning coals for nine feet carrying the lance he is horrifically burned, his feet get infected, and he dies of his injuries. 
And so there's some suspicion there. But there is the fact that they won the Battle of Antioch after they found this. And so I bring to you the lance that supposedly pierced the side of Christ. Uh, We don't know that for sure. In fact, we have significant doubts about that. But at least it was this crusader lance that Peter Bartholomew found, and they took it into battle and won the Battle of Antioch. So I hereby pierce your tongue with my lance. I didn't know we were ever going to have a tongue piercing. (laughs) Here it is. Here it is. So if I recognize the Holy Lance as a valid contender, then obviously it's no contest. My issue is that I have previously presented the Spear of Destiny, also known as the Lance of Longinus. And while there are many versions of the Lance, can we present every possible version of the Lance out there and as a separate submission for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History? I almost think that what we have to do in this, because I think both of us have significant suspicions, both about the authenticity of the moist tongue and about the authenticity of the spear. I think we have to just put a spear and a tongue against each other. And yeah, the tongue can set things on fire with the fire of hell, but we've got a spear is probably going to defeat a tongue. So as I said earlier, we were in Oxford and London recently, just about five, six days ago, we came back. When we left to go there, we landed in Heathrow Airport and I picked up my phone, which had been in airplane mode, and I picked up my phone. And when I picked it up, there was just this flood of text messages. And what these text messages mostly had to do with were the overthrow of Roe versus Wade by the United States Supreme Court, the recognition that there is no federal constitutional right to abortion. And I think as a child in the 1980s and even a decade, 20 years ago, I might have thought that abortion would be limited in other ways in the United States, but I don't think I ever expected that Roe versus Wade would actually be overthrown in quite this way. And so I want to spend some time today with us just talking about apologetics and abortion. And I think what a lot of people may not recognize is that the issue of abortion has actually been part of the church's apologetics since at least the second century, but maybe not quite in the way that you might think. The way that it's talked about in the Christian sphere and this accusation of Christians being a one-issue platform of politics and this one issue being abortion, all of this is this assumption that this is all recent. This is a a new thing, that this is some issue of evangelicalism, where the reality is, is this is an ancient passion of ours, because since the beginning, we have fought for and believe strongly in the dignity of human life. And that's one of the things that we have to recognize is, as you said, from the beginning of Christianity, abortion was actually practiced in the ancient Roman Empire and before. So centuries before the Roman Empire, you've got Aristotle. Aristotle says, when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. For the line between lawful and unlawful abortion will be marked by the fact of having sensation and being alive. Now, it's interesting that even 
even Aristotle has a sense of that there should be a limit on abortion. We'll set that to the side for the moment, at least. But I do want us to recognize that he can discuss it in these terms. He can talk about that this is something that, in his mind, ought to be procured if they have children, in his mind, in excess. And what we begin to see in that is that for particularly people in the ancient Roman Empire— Human life was not intrinsically sacred. The whole notion of intrinsically sacred human life is a Christian invention in the sense of it going to all people groups and all nations. Now, of course, it was present in Judaism to some degree, but Judaism was a particular ethnic group, a particular ethnicity that was holding to this that was largely insulated. That's not completely true. There was some porousness to Judaism and inclusion of others, but for the most part, Judaism was an ethnic religion, and yet Christianity multiplies itself out into all ethnicities. And by doing so, what Christianity ends up doing is spreading this message of this notion of the intrinsic sacredness of human life far beyond what the Jewish faith ever had. And so human life just wasn't considered to be intrinsically sacred in the world as a whole in the time of early Christianity. Outside of the New Testament, once that closes in the late first century, where and why do we start to see these discussions around the issue of abortion and dignity of human life and, and whatnot? Well, we see it as early as the first century. There's a document called the Didache. And in the Didache 2.2, it specifically says that you shall not slay a child through abortion. And it adds something else that helps us to understand the context, nor kill that which has been born. And what's getting at there is that it was acceptable in the Roman Empire in that era, if you had a child and did not want the child, the father did not recognize the child as his own. Not in the sense of biological descent, but as it didn't recognize the child as a child he wanted, the child could simply be taken outside the city limits and left in a designated place to die or to be gathered by slave traders, often is what happened. And so, what you see here is that this notion of both after birth and before birth you shall not slay a child. That same thing is repeated in the Epistle of Barnabas 19, which is in the second century. You've got that uh, repeated as well. So you've got these really clear instances in the first and second century. So you're talking mere decades after the New Testament. You start to see these things, in fact, in some sense, less than decades after the New Testament, less than a decade after the last New Testament book is written. Christians are already speaking of this. And you even have somebody like Tertullian who is the end of the second century, he speaks of this in detail. In fact, in his work, De Anima, or On the Soul, 25, I was actually going to read it, but he speaks of it in such explicit detail that I felt like it really wasn't fitting. But I would encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, look up Tertullian of Carthage, De Anima, On the Soul, 25, 4 through 6, and he is able even to explain in detail how they performed abortions in the ancient world, in, in the ancient Roman Empire, and the Christian response to that. And so you see this 
all the way back at the beginning of Christianity, they are already wrestling with this issue and coming to a conclusion that is unanimous across the board among early Christians, that abortion is something that Christians simply do not practice. In this podcast, several times we have discussed early apologetics and how different it was than what we think of apologetics today. And many times we have pointed out that it was the way in which Christians lived and the way in which they died and the way in which they uniquely did both of those things that was such a powerful witness to the surrounding nations, right? This was how they were salt and light. And when they were making arguments for why they ought to be either left alone, not persecuted, allowed just the freedom to be, or making arguments for why Christianity was a legitimate religion, many times they pointed to these things. And a bunch of times that included clearing up some misunderstandings, some wrong concepts and ideas about who they were or what they were doing as part of their worship. And several charges were brought about uh, early Christians, but, but three that really pertain to the discussion of how and why this issue shows up in early Christian apologetics, the three charges being one of atheism, right? This charge that not that they didn't believe in God, kind of like modern atheism, but really that they didn't worship the Roman gods. The second charge would be incest, which we'll kind of circle back around and say why. And then the third would be cannibalism, right? And so you have early Christianity. This was not a public nor popular faith group. And so they weren't opening up buildings and coffee shops and things like that to have public worship. Most of their worship was in secret and hidden. And therefore, if you were not a part of this community of faith, then you didn't know what went on in worship gatherings, right? And if you heard about some of the things that went on, then you could form your own ideas. And this is how some of these misunderstandings came to be. The charge of incest comes from this knowledge you would interact with Christians who used very familial language, right? They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And scripture tells us, right, that becomes our most important relationship. And so my relationship with my wife is more important that she is my sister in Christ than she is my wife, right? And today we don't use that language as much with especially like with our spouses, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, it's not used as much, but it was used much more in those early years. And so you see two people, husband and wife, that call each other brother and sister, and then you see them public displays of affection making out in public. And then the thought is, well, look, this brother and sister have a sexual relationship. These people are incestuous, right? And then the issue of cannibalism comes directly, well, from a couple things. One, right, that we eat the body and blood of Christ, which would be really confusing to folks not part of this faith community. And when you would hear that, here's this religion that eats the blood and the body of the one that they worship. You also know these to be people who go and rescue or take children who have been exposed, who've been left to die or been left to the elements or whatever, all you know is that they're taking these children and 
these children are disappearing and they're taking them into their places of worship and their home and whatnot. And you know that these people eat the body and blood of Christ. And so the rumor began that they would sacrifice or eat these children that they were picking up. And that was yet another misunderstanding and accusation that would come about of Christianity. And so the earliest Christian apologists had to defend themselves against these misunderstandings. Yeah, and one of those was a guy named Athenagoras of Athens. And Athenagoras, he addresses all three of these straight on. And what's interesting is what happens when he gets to that last one, the one about killing and eating children. What he says, I'm going to paraphrase it at first, and then I'll actually read his actual words. Athenagoras says, in essence, eat children? Eat children? He says, we don't even practice abortion. If we don't practice abortion, how can you claim we kill and eat children after they're born? That's, in essence, what he says. So, in other words, his argument back, this is in the latter part of the second century, his argument back about this issue is, you know that we don't practice abortion. Now, let's pause and think about that for a moment. That means that it was widely known that Christians didn't practice abortion at least as early as the second half of the second century. People already knew it. People outside the church knew Christians don't do that. So he could appeal to that, this truth that they know, even outside the church, he could appeal to that as his reason for saying, here's how you know we don't kill any children because we don't even participate in abortion. Now, the work that he does this in is called the embassy. It's uh, an appeal to an emperor. It's probably not something that ever got to an actual emperor, nor did he intend it to, but he did mean it to be a defense of Christians to people who were philosophically inclined in his context. And so here's what he says in this particular work. He said, how can the same person regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being that is an object of God's care, but then when it has passed into life to kill it? That's what he says. What he's saying right there is, look, we regard the fetus of the womb as a created being that's an object of God's care. If that's the case, and you know it is, because we don't participate in abortion, then how would we end up killing it once it passes into Life And so where this notion of abortion shows up, it's not just in Athenagoras. The same thing is stated in Tertullian of Carthage a few years later. But it shows up in apologetics as evidence that Christians don't kill and eat children. <laughs> That's how it shows up. And so they're saying, we don't do this. Here's how you know we don't do this, because you already know that we oppose abortion. And so what's important for us to see is the Christian commitment not to participate in abortion is so venerable, so ancient, and was so widely known that they could even appeal to that fact as they received these false accusations as a way of refuting these false accusations. So it's important for us simply to see that, to recognize that, that this is part of the witness of the Christian church throughout the ages, which then Brings us to this contemporary issue on June 24th, the Supreme Court of the United States of America overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling that had declared abortion to be a federal constitutional right. Now, that didn't outlaw abortion. It didn't make abortion impossible. What it did is it gave states the right to limit or even to outlaw abortion. It said it's not a federal constitutional right. 
right. And so this has caused much upheaval, much discussion, many responses. We don't pretend and we aren't going to try to cover all that. What we want to do is look at some things specifically from the perspective of apologetics and church history to help you have these discussions in your church and in your neighborhood as you engage with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've been listening to us for any amount of time, you've probably heard us several times, various different issues kind of bring up the issue of false dichotomies, dualisms, situations, thoughts, tones that become either or when they should probably be thought of in terms of both and. And so we wanted to talk about some false dichotomies here that if you spent any time on social media after this, which I tried to do as little as possible, you would have seen these false dichotomies pop up very quickly, right? In fact, Twitter is probably the den of all false dichotomies. So we wanted to start there. And we have three of them that we'll mention. There's a a lot of conversations we could have, but the first false dichotomy, and we're going to state them in the positive, right? Instead of setting up the false dichotomies, we're just going to say, no, here's the both and. We can celebrate the end of Roe v. Wade, and we can still recognize that this is a complex issue and that there is still so much work to do for Christians, for the Christian church. We can do both of those. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And that, especially on Twitter, it seemed like many people felt it had to be one or the other. Either we celebrate it or we say there's a lot left to do and this is a complicated issue. We need to be able to say both, I am going to celebrate the fall of Roe v. Wade without any apologies and without any hesitation. I'm going to celebrate that. I do celebrate that. I did celebrate that. I am joyous. I am glad that this misunderstanding of the U.S. Constitution, misconstrual, has been recognized as a misconstrual, and that therefore there is no federal constitutional right recognized to abortion in the United States. At the same time, I'm also going to say this is a really complex issue with a lot of emotions and a lot of hardship and a lot of difficulties as a pastor. And I can recognize both of those. As I think about this, let's just think about the National Institute of Health statistics just about abortion. 40% of women who have abortions do so for financial reasons. They think, I can't afford a child. 31% at some level are either pressured by their partner or it's something that their partner just doesn't want a child. 31%. 29% said they had an abortion because they're struggling to raise the children they already have. And then you look at some of the other statistics from some other research, and you find out at least 44% minimum, that's the lowest percentage that I could find, at least 44% of women regret their decision to have an abortion. It's a complex issue with people feeling like this is my only option because of poverty, because of pressure from my partner, because of, I don't know what to do with the children I have. These are are women who are making a choice and close to half of them at least say afterwards, I regret it. 
I regret that decision that I made. Now, none of those factors justifies abortion. I'm not saying that it does, not even suggesting that any of these factors justify abortion, but they call us to compassion. They call us to be compassionate in this. Because no matter where you land on this issue, we all must recognize that this isn't about politics, a political battle. It's about people. Real people are a part of this issue. There are faces and names that most of us can think of right now who are affected in various ways and on various levels by this issue. And that's something that believers cannot forget in getting caught up in this, what many have deemed as some political victory, some triumph. We can't forget that this is about people. And all of these, what we need to do is celebrate. Yes, celebrate. I am happy that Roe v. Wade has fallen. I am very happy about that. But I also recognize that there's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and we can have compassion and celebrate at the same time. You don't have to have one or the other. Yeah. Another false dichotomy. Again, we're going to state it in the positive. We can point to everything that Christians have historically done and already do now to help expectant mothers, single mothers, orphans, all of that. We can point to all the things that Christians already do to help those people. And at the same time, we can recognize that there's still a lot more to do, that we have a long way to go. Yeah, it's so easy just to point to all the things that Christians do, the crisis pregnancy centers that don't just try to prevent women from making the choice of abortion. They actually care for people. They care for their children that are already with them, provide childcare. They provide job training. They're doing all sorts of things in these crisis pregnancy centers. And we can and should point to that and celebrate that. Simultaneously, we can say, my goodness, there is so much more that could be done. Because as long as there is one woman who believes that an abortion is her only viable option, and she doesn't know that there is help and there is hope, and she doesn't want to do it, but she does it because she doesn't see another option, as long as that's still happening, there's more that we could do. Whether it's in making people aware of it or in providing the resources for it, I don't care what it is. There's so many areas that we can still provide help and hope, and we should seek to provide help and hope in those areas. We can point to what we've done, but that doesn't mean we can just downplay or ignore what there's still left to do. In the Sunday Following the Roe v. Wade decision, our pastor told a story, pointed to a church, I believe it was in Miami-Dade County, and this church at some point took it upon themselves, made the decision to be the primary source of caring for and taking in foster children. And you can look at the numbers of the foster system in this county now and and see the, I mean, just enormous, unbelievable impact. I, I don't know if it's down to zero foster children, but there is a tangible, massive movement started by this church to, to do the very thing they set out to do. And, and so that is, in this example, that is where I, we can look at Christians. We can look at 
the church and say, look, we are truly pro-life. But at the same time, when I think about that church immediately kind of following the good thoughts, it's there's a conviction that would that every church, every Christian church, could we say the same thing? And what if, what if we all came to that same conviction as communities of faith? And so I I think that's exactly what we're saying here. Yes, there is a response. There is an apologetic when you hear the critique, the accusation that Christians are pro-birth but aren't truly pro-life. There is a defense to be made, but don't hang out there. (laughs) Instead, let's be like the early church and let our apologetic be the way in which we move forward in the action we take and the impact that we have on caring for expecting mothers, single mothers, children without parents. And that leads us directly to our third false dichotomy. And again, we'll state it first in the positive that we can recognize that Christians have done much to help expectant mothers, to help single moms, to help people who are disadvantaged, who are are facing some of these issues to do with abortion. And still, we can also call corporations and government agencies to do more. You don't have to put those against each other. In other words, just because you're saying corporations and government agencies, they need to do something, doesn't mean we are saying that the church shouldn't do something. It can be a both and, because if abortion seems necessary for women to participate in the workplace, which seems to be one of the arguments, then something's wrong. (laughs) Something is seriously wrong in our world and in our perceptions and in what is available if abortion seems necessary for women to participate in the workplace in the way that they need to. And so it's okay for us as Christians to say the church does some beautiful things. The church does some amazing things. I'm part of those things. And at the same time, to say to corporations, to government agencies, there need to be things like paid family leave, both for fathers and for mothers. There need to be child-friendly workspaces whenever that's conceivable. There needs to be childcare provided at work at times. There needs to be remote work flexibility when children are sick. There needs to be paid time off for things like parent-teacher conferences, all of those things. It's okay for us to call for those things even as we help people as much as we can and in the ways that we can in the church. Those don't have to be contradictions because they aren't contradictions. I want to work with all my might in our church to do what we can. I also want to work with all my might to see different corporations and government agencies make it possible for there to be workplace environments where women can thrive and where they can flourish as mothers. And it's okay. And we need to be able to say both of those. Those are both crucial things. Yeah, absolutely. Timothy, in in our remaining time, how have, how can we make a Christian case against abortion? Biblically, theologically, all of those. How can that conversation look as we try to live and speak truth and be salt and light in this post-Roe v. Wade world? Well, I think as we look at the early church, I think it's interesting that they simply assume certain things in this. They don't really draw 
particular Bible verses. It's rather that every child, even in the womb, is a creation of God in the care of God. And so they assume on that basis. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't make a biblical case, but I'm just saying it's almost as if this is part of their entire worldview assumption of how they view life itself. But we have to ask biblically, why do they see life itself in this way? Well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 1. It's that every human being is an image of God, is created in God's image. And if somebody is going to say that I want to affirm every human being in God's image, but I also want to affirm abortion, then my question would have to be, well, then where do you think the image of God begins? At what point in a child's development within the womb, outside the womb, when does the image of God emerge? Because if the image of God is something that emerges at some point in that process, then it is not something that the child intrinsically is, which seems to be what Scripture says, that every human being is intrinsically an image of God. It's something that is imputed or gained or earned or developed later. Whether you are laid up in a hospital bed being kept alive by a machine, whether you are a brand new minutes old newborn baby, or whether you are the president or king or queen of a country, we are all made in the image of God. It is our human nature to be the image of God, and we all are that equally. Now, there have been some pushbacks on the idea of opposing abortion from the Bible. And I think we ought to take that seriously. As Again, browsing through social media, I see these things coming up. And one of those is Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 22, which talks about two men having a fight, two men striving together. And it says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. And what people say is like, look, They're reading this as if what it's saying, if the woman has a miscarriage, she's struck inadvertently and she has a miscarriage, that therefore this is something that that the man who did it is only fined. He only has to pay a sum of money. But if he kills her or does something to her that does permanent damage to her, that then he would have to pay life for life, et cetera, like that. Now, I think that's a misconstrual of this. Now, even if it weren't a misconstrual of this, I think it's not that relevant for the issue of abortion, because this is talking about something done accidentally in the context of a fight that's happening. So I don't think it's that relevant. But even if it were, let's let's just set that aside for a moment. The point of this seems to be not that the woman has a miscarriage, but rather that she delivers her children early. So here the actual grammar and and as much as we can capture of the text, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who struck her shall surely be fined. In other words, what it's saying right there is if they are delivered early and safely, then he shall be fined for what he did. But if there is harm, that is to say, if the woman or the children are dead or injured, 
then it should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. That's the point of this. To read this as something that says a child's life, a child in the womb, its life is worth less than a grown human being's is a misunderstanding of this text and what it says. And some translations, I think, add to that confusion by actually supplying the word miscarriage in that. Well, that's not actually what the text says. If you read the text, what it says is that he strikes this pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. Ultimately, in all of this, what we're talking about is that central commandment that Jesus calls the second of the great commandments, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The child, the unborn child is our neighbor, and therefore we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That is the central point of that. But of course, as we think even about that, what about our neighbor, (laughs) as in the person living near us or with whom we interact, who doesn't believe the Bible. Like we've brought these things up. These are in the Bible. These are theological concepts. But what about the neighbor that doesn't believe the Bible? Well, we have to dig down to civil law and think about that. And then we're going to take a step from that to what we call natural law. But civil law, universal, pretty much in every country you're in, in any place you're in, certainly in any places we're talking about right now, that outlaws violence or loss of life to any human being, except in instances where they've committed an act which is by law punishable through loss of life. So outside of that, which we call capital punishment, and that's a different issue that Christians can have a variety of perspectives on. But what we're talking about here is the fact that in every civil law, there is some measure of some sort that outlaws violence or loss of life to human beings, except in instances where they've committed an act that is punishable through loss of life. And that's in every civil law because it is part of the natural law. That is, that there is woven into creation itself certain things that cause us to make laws that fit with particular values that are God's values. It's what C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, he calls that the Tao or the natural law, that there are natural laws by which people live and make laws in countries, in nations, in cities, even though they may not believe in God at all, they still make laws that are in keeping with the law of God. And when we talk to our neighbor who doesn't believe the Bible, we're going to have to wrestle with this question of how does this fit with natural law? And just as a side note, even in then, you're actually making an argument that is divine in its nature. (laughs) You're still making an argument that's divine in nature. Just understand you're having to make it on the basis of what God has woven into nature as opposed to what he has revealed in his word. But just know when you draw from the book of nature as opposed to the book of scripture, you're still drawing from God's truth. I remember, right, those early days of learning about things like civil law and whatnot. And the first time that someone explained to me rights and and freedom and and whatnot and kind of the way it was first presented is, right, that your rights and and your freedom to swing your fist 
end at the tip of my nose, right? You're free to, to walk around swinging your arms in the air. You're perfectly free to do so until it comes to the tip of my nose. And then at that point, you have violated my rights and my freedom. And it always struck me as odd that that applies to everyone except a child in the womb, that you have the right to do whatever you want to do until it affects another human life, but that suddenly, as soon as we're talking about a human life of a child in a womb, that we throw this universal truth out the window and do a bunch of logical and argumentative gymnastics to to argue against this person being a person to get around that rule. Anyways, that's just a, a thing that's always confused me. Well, I think what we're asking in that, the central question in that is, and it becomes, is the child a human being separate from its mother? I'm not talking about separated. Obviously, it's connected to its mother. I'm not saying it in that sense. But is it a separate human life from its mother? That's what we have to wrestle with. And that's the real question that we have to confront our unbelieving neighbor who's trying to understand why we oppose abortion, but doesn't believe in the word of God, that's what we have to help them wrestle with is that this child is a human being, a human life that is separate from, independent from its mother's life. Now, somebody could say, well, it's dependent on its mother for life. Okay, that's true. But so is it for the first two years of its life. Yes. So yes. are they, when they are in their 20s, sometimes dependent yes. on us for their life. There's so many ways. And most of the time, for life. we get to an age as senior elderly adults that we become dependent on other humans. And yet, we don't equally apply this type of logic and reasoning across the board. Dependence isn't the same as not having an independent existence. Simply because you're dependent on somebody else for your needs doesn't mean you are not an independent human being from them. That We've got to understand that that's this false idea that because the embryo, because the fetus is dependent on the mother to live, therefore it must not have an independent being. And that's simply this false idea. And you see it every time somebody says, my body, my choice. When they say, my body, my choice, what they are assuming and implying in that is that my body, this child is part of my body, as opposed to it being a separate body. And when somebody says, my body, my choice, I'm like, I agree with you 100%. But the body that's being destroyed in abortion isn't your body. <laughs> it isn't yours. It's not scientifically. It has its own genetic code. It is a separate human life from your life, simply because it is dependent on you for its sustenance, nutrition, protection, all of that doesn't mean that it's your body. It is a separate body from yours. And, and what I find interesting is, is actually early Christians already had this concept down. This is not something that somebody suddenly came up with in the 19th, 20th, 21st century of, oh, they're separate genetically, all that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this was long before we could test DNA, that we could see when a, a child a fetus can experience pain, like long before we could look into the womb, we already had some of these concepts. Tertullian, who had so much to say about the soul, about human life, about things like that, he said, and he's speaking to expectant mothers here, he says, don't you feel in the embryo within you 
a living force separate from your own, one with which your inner parts tremble, your sides shake, your entire womb throbs, and the weight which presses against you constantly changing its position. You see how he's describing that. And he's describing this. He says, don't you recognize? He says, you do, don't you? That this is actually a separate life from your life. It moves independently of you, and it's a separate life. And so this concept is not an invention of 20th and 21st century genetics. This is something that Christians understood throughout the ages, that this is a separate life. And so when somebody says, my body, my choice, then it helps us to articulate, well, that's true, but this is a separate body. Because the foundation and the basis for the Christian thought on this is that at conception, we have another independent subsistence, a human being. Once that is the case, then these questions of freedom and ought and so many pragmatic questions that are all so focused on the individual, the adult individual, they don't apply anymore or they don't apply in the same way because now we have to take into account another human being even though that human being is connected to a part of and dependent upon its mother in the womb. And you see the logic you're talking about right there, how one thing is going to lead to another in this. And that's not a a slippery slope fallacy. It's simply saying that, look, once you state this, there are other concomitants with that. There are other things that come with that. Once you state, if this is your authoritative declaration, that nobody should be forced to be a parent that doesn't want to in that moment, that comes with a lot of other ethical things with that. And there are other things that then accompany that, such as, for example, to build on some of the examples you gave that why should anybody care for an older person who is losing their capacities and their their faculties. Why should anybody care for them? And I read across this in recently reading Cormac McCarthy's book, No Country for Old Men, one of my favorite Cormac McCarthy novels. And he gets this. And I don't know what Cormac McCarthy himself believes on this, but he gets what exactly we're talking about right here. He's got the sheriff, Sheriff Bell, who is one of the characters in No Country for Old Men. And he's talking about a conversation he had with an older woman. And he speaks of this woman. He said, she kept on, just kept on. Finally told me, said, I don't like the way this country's headed. I want my granddaughter to be able to have an abortion. And I said, well, ma'am, I don't think you got any worries about the way this country's headed. The way I see it going, I don't have much doubt, but what she will be able to have an abortion. I'm going to say that not only will she be able to have an abortion, she'll be able to have you put to sleep too, which pretty much ended that conversation. (laughs) But he gets it. That's it right there. He gets that. He understands that if you do one, the other is going to accompany that. And the reason is that suddenly the value of life becomes dependent on our perception of the quality of life. And when you say that the quality either of my life, either of the parent's life, saying, I I don't want my quality of life to go down, or the perceived quality of what you think the child's life will be, it becomes dependent on this amorphous notion of quality of life. And so when you do that, the value of life is no longer intrinsic and absolute, because that's what we as Christians believe, that the value of a human life is intrinsic and it is absolute. It is grounded in the image of God and it is intrinsic and absolute. And you move it at that point to something that is extrinsic and relative. 
It's grounded in this amorphous notion of the quality of life, either the quality of the mother's life, what it's going to be, the quality of the child's life, whatever it's going to be, but this amorphous notion of quality of life with no clear standard for how much quality is necessary to make a life worth preserving. Whenever I think of being pro-life and thinking about abortion and these issues, I cannot help but think of a song by my favorite band, or at least one of my top three favorite bands, as we've talked about. And it's King's X. I mean, there aren't very many pro-life songs that are really, really great out there, but they've got one. It's called Legal Kill. And I remember even at a time when I wasn't necessarily as committed to this issue as I am now, this song really resonated with me and stuck with me. It goes, I know your side so very well. It makes no sense that I can tell. The smell of hell is what I smell. And you hand it out with handshakes every day. I have trouble with the persons with the signs, but I feel the need to make my own. There's two ways to be, and truth does not depend on me. Yes, there's two ways to be, and truth does not depend on me. I can't believe it's no big deal. Christians have always, I mean, (laughs) they could sing that same song and apply it to the Roman games at the Colosseum, which is yet another example of things that Christians decided from the get-go. I can't be a part of this. I can't attend. I can't support this. And this went badly for them, right? They were seen as a lot of various misunderstandings and accusations came from a decision like this. But again, in the end, it's, I can't be there for this because this is, you've made a game, a sport of murder. This is a legal kill. And I can't see how you've made this to be no big deal. And I suspect that the people who live it out in the upcoming generation will be the people who have already been living it out in the past generation. Those who saw it as nothing more than a political issue, they will still see it as nothing more than a political issue and probably will just skip on to another political issue or simply double down on this one even more. I think that the people who actually are doing something about this in the future are those who have done something about it in the past. And that means if you're one of those people who has done something about this, keep it up, keep going and doing this. And if you're somebody who you realize, you know what, I've not done much personally about this of caring for expectant mothers, and I've seen it as a political thing, then step over to a different angle on this. Be an argument for the truthfulness of Christianity. And it's hard. And this is something we've walked personally. When my wife and I, we discovered we couldn't have children biologically. We stepped into some adoption processes and we learned a lot in that. In the end, we didn't end up adopting an infant. We didn't go that direction. We ended up adopting all of our children from the foster care system or at some level through the foster care systems at some level. But in the midst of that, one of the things we ended up doing is there was two different instances that we paid for all of the 
expenses for two different expectant mothers, and neither one of them became ones who gave us their up their child for adoption. We didn't end up with their child, but we did it not to get a child out of the deal. And that was something we had to learn to do, is to do this not because we might get something, but because it was right and it was good. And it included things like for one of them, for her other children, buying them winter coats and buying their school supplies and helping out with that in all these different things, as well as medical expenses and all those things. It was like thirty dollars or $40,000 we ended up spending during a couple of years, two or three years with these young women who were walking this road in this way, working with this the center at that point. And we have to be able to make some of those sacrifices in that way of doing that. And I don't know where those two young women are now. I don't know. I don't have to know. We didn't end up connecting with them later. We lost track of them. I don't know what happened. I do know this. I do know there are two children who were not aborted, who would have been otherwise. And I believe that whatever may be is better than that mother have participated in the killing of this child. And whatever it costs, it's worth it. Whatever happens, it's worth it to be able to invest this and to do this so that you can care for those who other people aren't caring for.